0: you are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to M Pavilion 2018. It's great to see you here. Um, please don't be shy. Do come down and sit near the front so that uh, Hannah and Annika might feel a little bit less lonely over here. They can't move in front of the speakers, you see. So before we commence tonight, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Yalakut Willem of the Boonrong people. The Boonwurrung are one of the five major language groups of the greater Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their ancestors, their elders, past, present and emerging. Now tonight we have an example of something that we really love about the dynamic of pavilion. Two weeks ago, Hannah wasn't on our radar. We didn't know she was coming to Melbourne. And we were really thrilled to be able to include her in our program at really short notice. So Hannah, thank you very much for agreeing to join us. And Annika, thank you for also... Um, coming in and and helping us to this event as well. Hannah Barry is often named as one of the most important figures in contemporary British art. She's the founder of Bold Tendencies Community Interest Company and Hannah Barry Gallery, both based in Peckham, South London. Transforming its multi-storey car park into acclaimed programs of contemporary art, Bold Tendencies has reimagined South London and captured the attention of the art world as well as the broader public, drawing nearly 2 million visitors since 2007. That's phenomenal. (laughs) And Annika Christensen is a senior curator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art since 2015, where she has curated some recent astounding exhibitions, including Eva Rothschild, Cosmos, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism, Greater Together, Clear Lamb, Mother Holding Something Horrific, to name but a few. I'm sorry I've got the intonations wrong And Annika was previously the Exhibition and Project Coordinator for the 19th Biennale of Sydney 2014, sorry, Biennial of Sydney 2014, and the inaugural Nick Waterlow OAM Curatorial Fellow for the 18th Biennial of Sydney in 2012. And we're delighted to have them both here tonight in conversation. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the introduction and thank you all for braving the slightly dodgy weather. You didn't know which way it was going to go to be here tonight. Um, So Hannah, welcome to Melbourne. I'm delighted to be here. It's quite a bio that you have, <laughs> and I know that you wear many hats. Um, but tonight, I really wanted to focus the kind of attention of our discussion on Bold Tendencies, on your work in Peckham in particular. Um, yeah. So, can I just have like a quick indication from the audience for those of you who are familiar or might have even visited Bold Tendencies before? Great, so we've got, we've got a few, and, and tonight we were hoping that we might have some visuals to show you, but we don't have access to a screen, so we're going to try and sort of evoke, I guess, a visual sense to begin with, um, yep. about what you might encounter as an uninitiated visitor to Bold Tendencies. Um,
2: so one thing I, I should say, and thank you all very much for coming, is um, I think one of the most important things about um, the project that I'm going to describe is that you um, people you know, the description and the way it's worked and how it's come about and everything it's been able to do is able to be interrogated. So feel free to ask any questions, however difficult you may feel that question might be. Uh, I, I'd much rather try to be as honest as possible. So that's from everything to, you know, h- how it happened to fundraising and all sorts of questions like that. Anyhow, um, painting a, a visual picture, I'll, I'll do my best Um Bold Tendencies is uh, located in a multi-storey car park. A multi-storey car park is ten stories high, and um, we the project occupies the top four f- stories of, of of that building. It's a building uh, built in the 1980s, um, originally uh, commissioned to service a supermarket. Uh, so the um, it's a brutalist style building it's not a great example of brutalism in any respect but it's um it's very long it's about 170 meters long and it's about 40 meters wide it has two the top floor which is comprising two levels um is open to the elements and uh, has a spectacular view out over the city from uh the millennium dome at one end right through across um, the City of London uh, through to Battersea Power Station and even further, when you turn round on yourself, you see Crystal Palace and south-east London, so the kind of greener side of uh, London on the other side. So one could describe it as a 360-degree view. And then on the levels below, which are covered, um, they are vast, um, uh, extremely pure and relatively innocent concrete spaces. And... um, pretty glorious, I have to say, and it's those spaces that when I first uh, had a chance encounter with this car park, because I was interested in, um, as one is, you know, curious about disused buildings, and lots and lots of disused buildings are very, very interesting to go and see them. Most of them are completely unusable for any kind of purpose that you might reasonably think of, Uh, but this one... um, because it was so long and narrow and extended off the High Street in in Peckham in South East London, a very interesting and kind of dynamic and strange area of South East London, that um, I had not realised that the car park actually existed behind the facade that um, uh, runs onto the the High Street. Um, Anyhow... Might be useful to know that when I first uh, becoming friends with the kind of buildings officer for Southwark Council, you know, we used to go and visit all these sort of buildings, and it was all very nice, and nothing was usable. But then uh, one day we went and we we found, uh, we, I found myself in these long, uh, wide concrete spaces, and I'd just been for the first time in New York, and I'd visited Dia Beacon in uh, up, upstate New York, and I, uh, the, the thing I most remember, aside from the world-class collection of uh, post-war art uh, there, was um, encountering works of art for the first time with sort of 30 meters ahead of you, being able to go round these um, often large-scale works, and then being able to leave the sculpture, beh- or whatever it was, behind you, for another 30 metres, and what that kind of encounter was like. And I felt when I was in these spaces for the first time that we would be able to... Um, uh, I, f- I felt that we would be able to um, cre- maybe look at a similar kind of encounter with, with works of art in that space, and that's really how Bold Tendency started. That's
1: great. As a,
2: as a, as a commissioning. Yeah. Um, and I'd I just been at ACCA this morning and uh, we were talking a lot about commissioning and what commissioning means um that's another key thing that i always say you know I am simplif- i'm simpl i'm a kind of glorified administrator frankly you know uh what 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 i do is not curatorial uh, i have no ambitions to be a curatorial project um, you know there are plenty of brilliant curators out there in the world in london there's it's an embarrassment of riches how much we have going on And so we decided that as a commissioning project, we would be looking predominantly, well, at least in the early years, at the um, in-depth support of an artist to create an autonomous and ambitious project that was site-specific. And the support we would give would be financial, uh, logistical, and to an extent intellectual. Um, But in that way, we sort of tried without fussing too much to define it from being a project that was curatorially led because every year we commission multiple works so just to give you an idea of um, numbers so this year we reached our 99th commission since we started over the years that has um, evolved and changed as has everything to do with bold tendencies I mean you know when you start with zero and you end up with a sort of organisation, there's a lot that you have to evolve and change and query and progress all the time. Um, With the selection process as it goes now, uh, we um, undertake a very intensive research period, and we're looking uh, all around the world all the time through all sorts of means um, at artists who might in one way or another respond to the challenge of the site or be interested in the site. We're also increasingly trying to bring artists to London who may have uh, made ambitious projects elsewhere in the world already, so have a certain type of experience with a site, um, but wouldn't have shown the work in in London. But we don't really have a a set uh, criteria, although we we try to support everything we do with intensive research and questioning of whether this can work on the site. Uh, We do now, and again, this is going a bit accelerating into another conversation, but um, it's a project that began as a very time-limited project. As with all very nice things that happen, uh, they tend to have time limits on them and um, any nice thing that happens in a piece of real estate that people didn't know about has an even more intensive time limit on it Uh, but what happened to us after 10 years of um, time limited work and and that was very very challenging from a let's say just one example is a fundraising perspective imagine trying to raise half a million pounds when you can't tell your funders when, you, when the project might finish, you know, it's quite difficult. And um, so we went through this very, very complex um, s- number of years where we had no sense of what the future really held. Um, but then the council, in their wisdom last year, cha- did a complete U-turn on the requirement to redevelop the building and um, offered us the opportunity to negotiate with them to have a lifetime uh, in in the space and um we made the decision to to go, to go for that um for a number of reasons obviously we wanted to continue intensify deepen the work that we've been doing for a very long time and why would you stop something that's fundamentally good and progressive but then a second thing that i felt very very committed to is that in london i don't know the scenario in this city or other Australian cities, um, increasingly the idea of public space in its purest, truest form is endangered. And um, I felt that, you know, there's a sort of thing about resistance where you can resist something by leaving it behind or denying it, or you can resist something by staying. And I felt that this was our chance to show the value of public space and civic... Um, activity in in an almost Victorian way uh, by taking the challenge, and it's an enormous challenge to say I'm going to turn something from a time limited organisation into something that is permanent. You know, for a lifetime, like beyond my lifetime. Um, because, of, because of the um, possibility of protecting a public space and by public space I don't actually mean the reality of the space itself I mean how people feel about it and how it exists in their memory of how they chose to gather together in that space and that's what brings people back and that's what consolidates community over time and community in itself is a very complicated term which we can also discuss but going back to your, your earlier sorry I'm a bit convoluted and I tend to go on and on and on in a lot of sub clauses but um, just to return to your original question to f- complete uh, the truth about how we select artists um, given that new life we, we decided that we could no longer accumulate permanent works in, a per- in an impermanent scenario because the scenario was now permanent And so that would be very limiting. And so we have decided to um, look at every year, starting this year, we have chosen a particular subject that we want the commissioning program in terms of visual art. And visual art is only one of five things that we commission um, to have a a very clear subject-led approach Um, and so again that's not a curatorial thread it's just trying to say can we take a subject of public interest because we have a very wide and diverse type of audience and we need to respect that Uh, can we find a way into that through um, the works that we're commissioning so this year the subject was ecology and next year the subject is fiction and the converse of that being what is fact and so on and so forth
1: um, I just want to go go back in time. Yes. Um, so go back to 2007, which is when you established the project. Yeah. Um, because I think that London has changed a lot in that time. Yeah. And so can you kind of briefly describe the context in which Bold Tendencies was founded? So perhaps like the economic or the cultural climate in London at the time and what you felt was urgent then that you were trying to sort of address or establish and why Bold Tendencies in its current format was the kind of ultimate way of doing that
2: i felt that it was incredibly important in 2007 slash 8 to remain optimistic um you know there was a huge financial crisis uh, brewing which was then executed and um that meant that pe- people got very frightened and um you know a lot of hope was sort of destroyed at that point and so we we wanted to um uh, be as ambitious as possible in the face of that and I, I meant that not just in terms of, of you know vision and ideas but you know attached to that had to be the ability to invest and you know I'm not someone who had the good fortune to come to Bold Tendencies with a private income or you know having made money that I could invest in in that which is you know per one way of doing things and um we just felt that, you know, it was important to think about philanthropy in, in the widest possible sense and to think, um, is it possible to make a philanthropic gesture um, wi- 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 without necessarily um, having anything in the first place? So, so that was, you know, it was a sort of, you know, I suppose it was a commitment to optimism, uh, in certainly in 2008 where it started to get really serious um, the other side of it is in terms of the so-called commissioning landscape I felt that there was it seemed to me that there were very few opportunities for um, um, artists who were less well known to um, make new and ambitious work that could be displayed publicly and that um, you know that was the the then-called Unilever Commission at Tate Modern, uh, Duveen Commission at Tate Britain, and the fourth plinth, which is the sort of big public art um, commission.
1: And so my next question is is twofold. So, yeah. so how has the project kind of shifted and evolved over time to address the kind of various changes that London has had and the various communities that you're attempting to service? Because the project has, you know, you've added kind of bits and pieces to it every year as you've progressed. And then, in turn, how do you think that the project has changed Peckham in particular? Because the area in itself has been hugely gentrified over that time um, and become kind of, I guess, quite an interesting cultural um, neighbourhood, a diverse neighbourhood. That
2: is a lot of complicated questions that is going to require many <laughs> subclause answers. We, we can break um, them down into. <laughs> so, uh, in terms of um, how have we evolved the project, well, let's take the commissioning idea. One way we evolved it was to say, hey, this commissioning idea is pretty interesting and effective. Uh, Are there other disciplines that we could apply that to? So uh, we, uh, in the first place, um, dealt with architecture because there were very few opportunities for younger architects. All the young architects I knew said, we get to design and think about great buildings. And we are really keen on buildings that have public use and um, uh, cultural value. Um, but we never get to build them. We never even get on the shortlist for those things. So I said, "Well, could we? We need some facilities in this enormously hostile environment. We have it's not it's not an Australian summer that we uh, sorry Australian winter. This British summer is comp- is 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 uh, unreliable. And so we needed certain types of facilities on the site to turn." Um, to turn the site into a slightly less hostile environment. And so architecture was the first area where we started to say, can we create an opportunity for an architect to make a beautiful and ideally you know, significant structure? And um, can that also be a, some sort of service or facility to us? And the first one was, you know, we needed to um, have somewhere for people to sit down and uh, we thought it would be nice if people could have a drink or have somewhere to get some refreshments. And um, that's where Frank's Cafe came from. And that was our first architectural commission to practice architecture. Um, what was wonderful about that was that um, it has become a significant source of revenue into the organisation um, uh, since we opened it in t- 2009. Which, again, we had no idea that you know doing this project would would be so successful and even make enough generate revenue that could be then put into commissioning art you know subsidizing tickets and so on um we then orchestral music was another area very different to architecture but um we were interested in um the problem of classical music and uh, we've gone on to think about the problem of opera being um, very, very high ticket prices to see the greatest uh, of those types of things in, in London and we thought, well, you know, can we can we set up a world class orchestra Site-specific for for the um, for the car park, which we did in 2011, and we have not looked back since. Um, every year, we've got, we've had a big classical music program and uh, orchestral concerts and chamber music, um, and you know those concerts sell out six, seven hundred people at a time, and uh, we have you know and in, when I say world class, I mean world class aspiration, and sometimes you get there, and you know you've got there when. Uh, the BBC proms, decide that they are going to not only invite the orchestra to participate in the proms and do whatever programme you want, but that they will come and the proms will take place in the car park and they will broadcast that concert from the car park, which proves that the quality of the performance and the quality of the sound is as good as it can get, you know, outside the greatest auditoriums in the world, uh, and so inspired by the confidence uh, installed in us through the classical music programme, uh, which I should add, the tickets, we are resilient about them being 5 to £10, pounds, um, because that's what opens it up to a big audience. In order to do that, you have to subsidise the tickets heavily, because even if you have six, 700 people coming for a concert, if you multiply that by £5, pounds, you do not make enough money on ticket sales to um, cover you know, a concert, let's say you wanted to do the Rite of Spring, which is an orchestra of 92 people, you know, but it's one of the great transformative pieces of music that you want people to hear, you know, costs you £70,000 to do a concert. The 2500 on the ticket revenue does not cover that. So you have to say, well, here I am with my principal and I'm going to subsidise that. So with that confidence, we thought, now we're going to deal with opera but even classical music could not prepare me for how much it costs to do opera. (laughs) Um, So when, you know, this brilliant um, young director, Polly Graham, who, you know, with all of these things, we have uh, fantastic partners who are real. You know, I am so far from any kind of expert on anything, but uh, Kate Whitley and Christopher Stark run the um, multi-story orchestra, as it's now called. Um, Polly Graham is really at the top of her game in terms of, opera uh, both you know looking at classical repertoire and radical approaches to opening that up I said to Polly you know we will do the opera but you know at the cost of about 300,000 pounds for four nights of young blood which I understand you know it's a glorious piece about youth uprising public freedom it's everything that we should be doing and it's I know it's got a cast of 70 and I know people are going to go crazy for it and we can have a children's chorus of 40 as well but i need two years to raise the money to do that so uh, we've taken two years we started opera this year um with a much smaller scale production and it was very very successful and so now we're going into production with young blood uh which is extremely exciting if somewhat frightening um and then the final area that we we applied this commissioning so you know every time i use that word commissioning i just mean you know i I might be sounding like I'm talking a lot about money, but it's very important to talk about what things cost uh, to do um, and to realise things, I think, as much as it's important to talk about ideas and the importance of ideas and artistic content and um, um, outputs. Um, uh, So, yeah, the the sort of financial, logistical, intellectual, creative support, we also... um, had the great good fortune this year by chance i sort of fell into the world of Sharon Ayal the great um Israeli choreographer and um through um i mean frankly just becoming addicted to her work um which i feel is it it's almost like with all these things and i'm sure you feel this about the artists that you commission um it's almost like you want the things that leap over the boundary of where they came from you know into something that is part of everything that we are all as well you know and that's where there can be a real connection between the, the so-called audience and and the artist and you know the the more proximity there is between those things the better it gets and the reason I'm crazy about Sh- Sharon Ayel, and if you don't know her work, you have to look it up. Just look it up online. If it comes to Melbourne, you have to see it. It is something so moving and deeply human and uh, sort of far-reaching in the way it addresses you know, how we all have the chance to feel and how we don't want to feel and how we do like to feel. It is beyond great and I said we have to do this and my board said you haven't got the money you can't do it and I said but we have to do it this is about what we have to commit to because if we do this project this year we can commission a new work by Sharon next year and we can do something great with dance that brings it outside of the auditorium and proves that you do not need the auditorium to do something radical in terms of Increasing proximity between the audience and the artist. So we did this great work called OCD Love. And now we're working with Sharon to bring um, the whole... uh, Her company's called Lev, Lev Dance Company. Bringing them to Peckham for two months next year to make a work site specifically uh, for the car park. And then on top of that, we are commissioning um, a number of smaller scale works um, um, based on our experience commissioning dance in the round because you know when you've got a car park you've got these long wide spaces you can sort of set up any type of environment you want just by moving chairs around and putting a floor out or whatever so you know it is it is everything and it is nothing at the same time that that's that's answered some of the questions <laughs>
1: it's, it's, we're getting there <laughs> um, in a you want me to talk about <laughs> gentrification no I want you to, I'm, I'm very happy for you to talk um, no not at all um You have mentioned the kind of commissioning aspect of what you do, but you also run education programs which are incredibly important and sort of offer amazing platforms and pathways for young people to develop their professional skills or to engage with art in new ways. Can you talk us through some of the things that you run, some of the initiatives that have kind of been established over that time?
2: So one of the things I'm kind of interested in is, you know, if you think about the traditional way an institution runs, you have the program, the audience, which program and audience are sort of dependent on each other and then you have this thing where education and the dreaded word outreach goes underneath that and then sort of at the bottom propping everything up you have shop and cafe you know um so we sort of thought wouldn't it be nicer if we sort of turn that on its side and put everything in parallel so everything is equal in its contribution to the way the space is evolving that was very very helpful in terms of um you know i'm not an an educator or by any means an expert in young people um, but the importance of uh, education what we call education community and play and it's just as important as the program and the, and the audience and, and the space itself and actually what we ended up doing after piloting you know essentially it was a very good friend of mine a very brilliant uh, woman called Sasha Morgan who, who said to me you know I love what... This is about six years ago. She said, I really love what you're doing. And she worked in the Department for Education. Uh, but you need to do more about um, how you could mobilise that material and make it useful to very particular groups of people who might, uh, or very particular needs that are in the immediate commu- community. And again, community, complicated and very, very um, uh, varied, um, especially where we are. Um so I said okay, you know, if you come and if you propose some of the ways in which we could mobilize all of this material, I said I want everything to be focused on the program, you know, that what what's being commissioned because that is, you know, that is world class material. What how are we going to sort of tease out of that something very specific? And I said, look, we'll we'll invest in it if um if 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 you tell me how you know, a bit how I'm going to do this. So we started to pilot a number of ideas and these things were not programmes. They were, we sort of thought of them like tools because we thought if we, if we have a tool, i.e. if we have a museum that we, that we um, you know, in a lot of primary schools in um, the local area, there is little or no art class. And even if people do art class, they only get taught about how to make art. There's nothing about display or talking about art or putting it together and all the things that, in principle, if you get taught about that very early, you might think, well, you know, an option is available to me to to, to sort of do that further down the line and I won't just start doing that when I'm at secondary school or in, in university or art school. Um, and, uh, you know, all of those activities are highly creative and, you know, even when you try to describe a work of art, uh, you know, there is a challenge there about you know, the description, as Gertrude Stein would say, an acquaintance with description. Um, Anyhow, the the museum was about primary school-aged children being able to learn about all those things and then take command of the whole thing, take the content from our programme, respond to that content and make their own museum on the site which we commissioned a piece of architecture that became the museum, the whole brand of the museum is developed by the kids in with an advertising agency. The um, welcome desk is done by the ki- You know, every aspect of this is run by the kids and Bold Tendencies is at the service of the 300 or so primary school-aged children who are engaged in this project. And then um, we determine workshops and ways of engaging with the public once the museum is open. And the museum was piloted in... 2015 i think and we've done it every year since then um and what i mean about that being a tool rather than a program is that every year you do it with a similar structure you can make it better you know you can make the tool more effective and in principle if the tool is effective enough and the idea is good enough and you know how to work it properly in principle you should then send that Tool out into the world to be useful to other people so none of these things my museum the art trainee program which you reference which is um loosely based on the guggenheims internship program which is a kind of working and learning opportunity on the site um, for young people aged 17 to 26 from all over the world but particularly interested in people who are not trying to pursue a career as an artist or a curator but every every other type of role in the creative industries and we've had uh, 162 people have now completed um, that program since we started 36 people joined us this year and again we've got you know we've been trying to I mean all of this stuff you know the more you want to do the more money you've got to raise but we've been trying to put in place a kind of scheme whereby access is widest possible so all expenses for that program are paid Regardless of where you come from, uh, the travel is paid and um, refreshments, and we are not it is not a jobs program, so it is not something that's going to move to being a full-time role for anyone, but it's a um, a project which um, will ideally at some point have a compensation structure attached to it. So that's just two of five programs that we're doing.
1: Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to, to witness both of them. When I think when I visited yeah. a couple of years ago, the museum was, I think, maybe set up around the theme of colour and the kids yeah. had responded to that and there were several of the art trainees around who were, you know, extremely enthusiastic about the project and that goes out into the, the world as well when they've finished yeah. their time with you. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about precarity because you've yes. mentioned that from the start it was sort of you're going year to year, never really knowing um, if you would exist Um, in the future and I wanted if you could talk um, specifically about some of the other challenges you might have encountered and also more broadly um, what are some of the inherent challenges that have come with working with such a kind of monumental non-institutional space and doing that all off your own bat without sort of funding and finances and resources behind you
2: I mean the thing is the most important thing is as early as possible with a project like this you become addicted to progress because as long as that happens you just can't stop and and that has been the kind of saving grace. And I'm talking very personally now um, about the first sort of five to eight years of the project, rather than the last five years where you know we, we have um, the the project is robust, it is stable. We have a fantastic, although small, team of five to five to nine people depending on the season. Um, you know, if I weren't so addicted to making it better. I don't think we would have survived. And I think the other key part of um, its survival has been about that thing I said about the community of people who've gathered around it and believed that it should have a life that carried on as much as the projects that we've been um, commissioning. I think precarity is certainly part of... You know, I think precarity is probably part of the life of any cultural institution most of the time. It's just what level are you at, you know? Um Boltensi's, you know, has had its extreme precarity. In uh, 2013, um, there was a, a kind of watershed moment I was describing to some people in Sydney actually a few days ago where um, somebody, uh, we, we, we did a very big project in Venice as well as a, um, the project in London. The project was called Palazzo Peckham uh, it was an amazing, amazing project, but it was um, very, very financially challenging. And that year, Bold Tendencies was also financially challenging. But you know, as as the person who is leading the organization, there is a serious decision that you have to make when the financial challenge is all, almost completely tipped over the balance of goodwill and all the other things that might save it. And you have to say, you know, fundamentally this is my responsibility and I'm either going to accept the responsibility and the terms that that brings if it brings the end of these projects or I'm going to accept the very heavy responsibility of turning this around and I would say that 2013 was definitely the moment where I had to do that and I'm very very glad that um, here I am in 2018 and the various people who were good enough to advise and counsel me at the time said it will probably take three to five years to sort this out. You can either take three to five years and do nothing, or you can do the project and you can recover at the same time. And I have to say I thought, you know, you you know, I will never forgive myself if I don't take the more difficult road. And we took the difficult road and that means that, you know, I'm sitting here today very very proud of the not just my um you know ability to survive but um the sort of brilliance of the team of people who have you know who have been part of bold tendencies across the years you know it wasn't about pre-2013 and after 2013 everything is totally amazing but you know because of all of that willpower and commitment and um, commitment to learning and progress and improvement—that is why the organisation is, you know, um, I hope the small local uh, project that it that it is, but also something that is outward-looking, you know, globally ambitious, uh, very, very uh, ambitious when it comes to investment, and um, committed to doing the greatest possible projects with artists for the artist and for the people who come to see it.
1: I love your line about being addicted to progress because I think in part that goes some way to answering maybe a private question I had for you, which is how do you have the energy (laughs) to do all these projects and to keep going year after year when it is precarious? And you also, in addition to running Bold Tenancies, have a gallery as well, Hannah Barry Gallery, which is just around the corner underneath Peckham Rye train station as you come out. But I sort of wondered how the two projects coexisted or differed from or informed one another or if they sort think, of uh, you know
2: i think they're very different from each other the gallery is um very committed to s- to looking after artists from the beginning of their um life out there beyond art school and uh does very very in-depth work with very particular artists and uh it is legally separate from um bold tendencies Uh, Bold Tendencies is governed by a board of directors. Bold Everywhere, which is the charity which deals with education, community and play, is governed by a a board of three trustees. Um, And the two, you know, the two, I suppose, are linked through me. Um, But, you know, they learn, I have to say, uh, I like the fact that the benevolence of the non-profit world has something to offer the commercial world. And the enterprise drive of the commercial world is very helpful to the non-profit world, you know. And I have to say, for a long time, I was very tentative about acknowledging that, you know, I was in both of these things, which might sound slightly schizophrenic, but, um, you know, I've come to terms with that um, only in the last year. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think, you know, what greater uh, opportunity and chance and gift is it really to have landed in this position and um to be able to serve so many incredible people and you know frankly for a kind of you know glorified administrator from southeast london you know uh you've got to take that responsibility very seriously and and i i do um and uh you know i don't know what else i would do if i suddenly stopped uh doing it tomorrow um But, you know, what I know is that it has been important to do it, Um, not for, for, for me, but for, I think, even if it just brings joy and progress to lots of people, then isn't that enough? Isn't that qualification enough for something to happen in a world that is as treacherous and challenging and problematic as the one we live in?
1: So maybe that leads to my next question which is slightly broader which is if you were going to start over now in the context that we're in now. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but what might you do? And and what kind of cultural and community or civic spaces do you think that the cities of today need?
2: Well, that's a very uh, interesting question and I can talk about something that we are about to embark on because we've been, you know, been thinking about this problem a lot. What 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 should, you know, Not what should we do if we weren't doing this, but what else might we do? And of course, one is often tempted, as I was for about a year last year, I kept sort of going out to all these different parts of London and finding these, you know, fantastic buildings and saying, you know, it's not a problem for us to, you know, we're going to do this, this and this, and we're going to build an auditorium and we're going to have a concert hall. And anyhow, I luckily pulled myself together and stopped thinking about that and thought you know there is no need to re try to and it would be impossible in any case to recreate the scenario that we've had in Peckham and why would you even need that because it is site specific it is very particular and it is unique in what it does and how it does it and that's why people like it why would you repeat it because then you would, you know, perhaps not so many people would come or whatever. There would be problems with that. But I thought, you know, there are various principles in our work that we've sort of come to know are our own. And I feel that also we've got greater skills and expertise than we had 10 years ago. And we still have some energy left. And we have an ever-growing team of uh, young people. Most of our team is under 30 Um and you know, in the next two to four years, I think it would be important that another so called chief executive that's my official role <laughs> um um uh, comes in um and um that there could also there should should also be increasing opportunities for people coming off the art trainee program to do difficult and challenging roles in the organization and I thought, you know is there something else that we could contribute to this? great city london um, and what is what is that challenge, and where is that going to lead us and you know something that i 've been looking at and thinking about a lot is um, artist studios and the lack of um, space that's available to artists and or the increasing lack of space and the problems around affordability of that space when it is available and so bold tendencies sort of thought uh, again, having had this kind of very site-specific disused building type experience. Well, shouldn't we want the converse of that uh, for another project? So what we're looking at at the moment is whether we can do a fantastic, completely new architectural project with Cook Cook, Fawcett architects, who are these young architects who've done two projects with them on the in the car park already. Uh, brilliant, brilliant young architects. Um, and we're looking at whether we do a completely new building, very very focused on um, uh, studios, and um, whether we can, um, you know, do that in a very interesting way. I'm probably saying more than I should about that project, but um, anyhow, that's what we're. That's what I think. You know, um, space for people to to gather in a sort of uncompromised way. Um, and to gather together for lots of different reasons is, you know, even in the high technology age, that will never go away. Our inclination to want to gather together, to want to share, so, you know, experiences of one sort or another, or even just share a comment about the weather or complain about something, you know, our our kind of desire for that will never diminish. And so for me, an a simple answer to your question is unique, radical, uncompromised spaces where that is possible and where people have thought carefully about what is there, what isn't there, what is necessary, what is unnecessary are totally essential.
1: Of of course the project is impossible to replicate so thinking about how it might evolve for the future is interesting and I've tried to kind of in the course of thinking about Tonight, try to think about spaces in Melbourne that may or may not be similar to Bold Tendencies. And there's nothing that quite aligns, but I guess Bold Tendencies, which is around the corner, is perhaps similar, which is in using kind of a disused piece of land for cultural production and the gathering of communities and for performing and visual arts as well. Um, and so to end, before I hand over to questions from the audience, I just wondered if you had sort of any advice, if what advice might you impart for say, people in Melbourne who wanted to kind of stout up something of their own in using a civic space for cultural gain? Um,
2: I think that the, the only advice that one can offer is that, um, you know, I think, you know, any, gest- any thought of might I do this, might I do that, you know, there is a generosity of spirit about that that means you should give it a try and um that you know I don't think there 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 is there is, there are things that are difficult and challenging and complex and sophisticated but but you know at the risk of sounding extremely cheesy, and I'm aware there's a friend of mine here who knows I can be quite quite cheesy, but um I don't think anything i mean my experience in the car park and what I feel might be my experience coming up in the next two to three years is that nothing, frankly, nothing is impossible if you put your mind to it and you commit to it and, it's, and you commit to it over the long term and that things take a long time. You know, I'm fed up of people wanting to accelerate everything because things take enormous time to work out what's going wrong and then go forward knowing what's wrong to, work to, to, to um, position oneself in the status of being right. You know, and that doesn't happen in two years. You know, maybe it doesn't happen in five years. I mean, if you're very lucky, it can happen in f- five years, I think. But you know, my experience is it's taken us almost twelve years to get to get to this point. And, you know, that is the greatest gift actually that the city and the council gave us was the time to to get it wrong, get it wrong, get it right, wrong, right, wrong, right, right, wrong and so on, you know. And um and, 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 and time, you know, is you know, without value, you cannot, you know, no amount of money can buy you that.
1: And don't be afraid to fail as well. Getting things wrong is also... It's like Beckett, isn't it? Fail again, fail better. Better. Yeah, exactly. Um, Are there any questions from the audience at all before we conclude this evening? Thank you working? Okay. Um, thank you. That was so um, amazing to hear you speak about bold tendencies in your experience. Um, you mentioned that Frank's Cafe is a source of, re- a revenue source for the prog- program. Could you tell us a bit more about the financial model and other Yeah, sure. Um,
2: the financial model is um, start at zero and raise as much money as necessary, Realise that you probably haven't got enough money and then raise even more money. You know, Without sounding sort of blasé about it, uh, we do take fundraising really seriously. Our fundraising is um, made up of three major sources. Um, private revenue streams, which would include Frank's Cafe and our other revenue streams. Partnerships and corporate support. Uh, a small number of highly committed individual international people uh, numbering about 14, who've been very generous over the last four years, um, um, also a small amount of um, uh, arts council funding, and um, and also what we call trusts and foundations, which is other kind of uh, foundation-led support, and that's really how it's how it maps out. Um, the um it's very straightforward and you know the th- trick i learned about fundraising because i'm not a natural born fundraiser um but um that is one of my major roles in the organization um is that the the trick is never to stop fundraising you know there isn't a sort of beginning and an end with fundraising you know uh, it's just good to always be raising money and um I like to, you know, again, I'm not sort of a person who knows lots of, you know, I don't know lots of people or I don't have a sort of go-to way way to do that. What I do is I, <laughs> I read um, the Financial Times and the New York Times and the, um, uh, from time to time, the Guardian business sections and I sort of look at, you know, where, how things are going and... Um, what, whether there might be interesting new companies. You know, because, again, you're in an environment where there's so, many, there's so much competition, for even for fundraising. You know, uh, you've got to always seek out something that someone else wasn't thinking about. And um, on the other hand, you know, I am quite a classicist when it comes to thinking about raising money, for example, for music or opera. You know, I think there is still um, a lot to do around bringing in major support for major programmes at a very high level. Um, that is money that can just be spent on commissioning and n- nothing else. Um, but all of that requires quite a lot of care and attention because we don't also have a large department that can manage all of that side of things. Um, so you have to be fairly, fairly nimble. And you also have to... Um, develop a healthy relationship with money that you know the more you raise the more you spend things are expensive to an extent things are possible with less money but actually when you have more i hate to say it but i it's not easier but it's but but the commitment is easier in a way um all of these things are things that I'm still thinking about, you know, how to do it better, more intensively, with more commitment. But that's, that's a kind of basic answer to your question.
1: Yes? to what extent is um your funding reliant on bodies through the door so like on what sorry on bodies through the door like the mass of your audience and is there a discrepancy between art forms and who's willing to commit certain amounts of money to different art forms
2: i think um the you know the the funding is not is not dependent on uh, directly on uh numbers of people through the door um I mean, if you think about it logically, there are ways that numbers of people through the door does affect that. Um, on the other hand, um, I think if you look at it the other way around, the, uh, the duty of the organisation is about ensuring that the environment beyond the threshold, the threshold is the important part, you know, the environment beyond that, all you need is somebody's curiosity to get over that. And then from the minute that they are in, uh, well, we have the most wonderful staircase, which is a work of art by Simon Wybray, which is this pink staircase, which is level seven, uh, 0 to 10, and it's, it's a gift of a commission, I have to say. You know. Um, but that commission really made me think, you know, your responsibility and duty is about care and upkeep and maintenance and looking after the people the minute they are there and that is about people in, in the building and in through the door. You know, uh, it's actually the other way round from them coming in. It's about what you're doing the other way. And if you're do, I think if you're doing that well enough, and I mean that everything from, you know, cleanliness and maintenance right through to ideas and experience, um, then 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 that's where the work is really. Um, and the funding comes from all of that coming together. And the funding only comes actually when you can prove that you can um, welcome people. You know, the, people feeling welcome is something very important to us. Uh, and everyone feeling welcome, and, you know, it attaches to that point about gathering, really. Um, um, the, the, the feeling of welcome, I think, is the most important one. And the minute that happens, people feel very comfortable, and therefore they not only will they would they like to explore and stay longer and be more curious, but you know um, they might bring their friends back again because you know yeah, sure, you know maybe they enjoyed having a drink at Frank's, or they are curious about the view or whatever it is, but frankly, if they didn't feel welcome whilst doing those things they would they would not stay for as long as they do, and they would not come back and in fact our number of visitors this year was the largest ever number we've had we had a hundred and fifty five thousand three hundred twenty something people in 19 weeks which is quite a lot of people um i hope that in a roundabout way answers the question I, i i am very averse to those dreaded things about how many people came through the door in a question you know answer to you know this person this demographic this this you know this is a real person we're talking about with a real value uh, you know a real human being i i't I, I think it's very very I mean it's important to be able to qualify things um, in statistical terms but far more interesting is the kind of Nuances of all of all of what sits around that. I
1: think. Um, We've got time for one more. Yeah.
0: So um, I guess Lydia and myself we run a, a bank of um, events on I guess what you will call council flats, but slightly different in that. I guess the people on this date um, come against a lot of structural disadvantage, and.
1: Uh, and Did you want to ask a yes. question about... OK, I think, um, so we, yeah, we run a, a bunch of projects in an underground car park on a public housing estate in Collingwood and um, we uh, have run different events there and now people from the community are seeking to run events there and Joshua wanted to talk about if you have come up against issues with um, discrimination and structural inequalities and those kinds of things and how you have dealt with that at Bold Tendencies. I think,
2: I think the key thing that, in fact, I wrote this in an email to um, somebody ahead of a um, trustees meeting earlier this week that um, actually came out of a conversation I was having with um, um, Alexi Glass Artspace. at Artspace in Sydney. Um, and it struck me that the way we need to look at um, it, particularly the approach to education, community and play programming, or tool, sorry, tool making is uh, bottom up rather than top down and I think it is about looking at what the needs are and then how people can work together to develop radical ideas and tools and programmes that can address those needs not necessarily solving the problem because, you know, I don't also believe that creative practice and art making is always there to solve a problem. You know, it, it, uh, that it, it's not like that all the time. But I think um, listening is something that people in the 21st century need to do more of. Uh, and listening for longer to the world around them and to each other and listening harder might bring forth an approach to dealing with the issue that you describe and of course back to the point about every single you know there isn't a sort of a a sweeping gesture or statement one can make that can answer that question because every single one of those people comes with their own story and challenges and and let's be clear, aspiration, there is no, you know, it is a sad and tragic place when that does not exist and so we have to do everything we can to encourage aspiration and o- and beyond that, service that with opportunity. That's sort of how I think about it, you know, and opportunity then can be supported and serviced by art and creative industries, programs, as much as it is by all sorts of other, programs that all kinds of people are trying to do Um, but that kind of aspiration thing and um, you know it is the world of dream and fantasy that everybody has a right to from the outset and uh, you know some places and some scenarios mean that that is diminished if not disappeared, redundant all these serious and um, difficult places but um, but being able to play a small part in trying to encourage and improve the system of opportunity uh, is an important thing
1: but it's a challenging uh, area. Worth doing. And Hannah thank you so much. Sure. You, you may be a glorified administrator <laughs> but you're a tireless one and so we thank you for your work and for your time this Thanks. evening. Great. Thanks. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.